Good morning. We've got added excitement today. We've got a comedy stand um, that's likely to collapse at any moment. Uh, last week was a Thanksgiving service, which is always one of our favourite events in the, in the church calendar. And today I want to move from Thanksgiving to the somewhat less popular subject of giving. Hooray! Yeah, see that seamless segue there? Um, <clears throat> I should probably say at the outset that this talk is really meant for members of this church. So if you're visiting with us, please feel free to treat it as a spectator sport. And I hope it's quite entertaining. It might be quite entertaining because there's many of us who suffer from at least one major disability in talking and thinking about money. Either we're British, which, in which case one just doesn't, old boy. One just doesn't. And, or, or we're Christian, or, or both. And if, we, if we're a Christian, you tend to regard money as rather unspiritual and not the kind of thing that we want to spend time on, especially on a Sunday. So, as I say, if you're visiting, just bear with us as we deal with a little family business. Right. <clears throat> yes, money plays an important part in all our lives, and that is equally true of the church. And in fact, the Bible actually talks more about money than many of us think. We are indeed going to address a Bible passage in a moment, but it would be, uh, we want to be very open about the fact that we are reading this Bible passage in a very particular situation as a church. We have a context to our reading. So in a moment, I am going to ask Jesse to give a short presentation about the nuts and bolts of our finances. I just want to begin with a very brief reminder of why we're here, about what we're about, what we're trying to achieve. As most of you know, our, our mission statement in its briefest form is simply helping people make connections with God. And by that we mean not only that first connection, where somebody doesn't know God at all and we help them to make that first connection, but more and more connections as we, as we uh, get deeper into our life with him. As we say in the vineyard, it's a matter of come as you are, but don't stay as you are. We're trying not to just make converts to a way of thinking, but disciples to a way of living. So the job of the church is to encourage and teach and train and equip people for the life that God is calling us to. And over the last 10 years, we have actually been able to do quite a bit of that, growing you know, despite the annual bereavement as students leave us forever because they don't love us. Uh, growing from a, a group that fitted quite easily into our front room to a church of about 150, which is what you see around you. And from the start, we decided not to, to sort of gun for a particular group or demographic, but just to work with whoever wanted to come. And the result has been what you see around you. Quite a lot of students, yes, but also people from very different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, different life stages, different belief systems. We're a church that aims to invite, involve, and invest in people. And so we need to offer a wide range of opportunities to get stuck in and become the people God calls us to be. I'll just list a few of them. Home groups provide a place to study the Bible, to discuss life issues, to get to know each other, to eat together, to have a laugh, and most importantly, to pray for each other. Through the storehouse ministry, Church members work with guys from other churches, providing food to those in need in our community. As a young vineyard leader, you can play an important part in the spiritual formation of the next generation. That'd be a good rap line, wouldn't it? Formation in the next generation, across the nation. <laughs> and every Friday lunchtime, yes, I, I, I have given up my rapping career, you'll be pleased to know it. 
And every Friday lunchtime, uh, anyone who can find the time is very welcome to join us for what we call Pub Church, which has been billed as Beer, Banter and Bible. In varying proportions, depending on how many theology students uh, turn up. It tends to be more Bible than a house full of theologues. Like any church, we also offer general pastoral care, mainly through home groups. But we also very intentionally train worship and tech team members, small group leaders, admin volunteers, and preachers. And all this comes for free. In the future, we'd love to extend the range and the reach of our activities for the benefit not only of church members, but of the wider community as well. The Vineyard Centre in Largo Road, which is just about to come fully on stream. Um, people have done a wonderful job of tidying it up uh, recently. It's nearly ready. Provides us with a dedicated prayer room, a general meeting space, a counselling room, a kitchen, and substantial storage and sorting space for the storehouse ministry. So we should soon be able to do quite a bit more for our community if we put our minds to it, as well as having lots of parties. And you don't have to be a Christian to take part in any of this either. Over the years, some of our most valued members have been people of all faiths and none. So do come. Uh, you know, some of them will, will come to share our faith in the end, but that's a matter for the individual. No one's going to pressure you and give you the hard sell. It's up to you. You're welcome to come as you are. Maybe not stay as you are. Now, I want to say there's a groundswell of opinion these days. You know, people object to the whole concept of church. We should somehow deconstruct all our churches and get back to basics, as they say, get back to the Acts of the Apostles, as if that was a kind of spiritual thing. And I think it resonates both with postmodern thinking, where there is no real truth, except there is no truth. That's the only truth there is, that there is no truth. Um, And that, that also comes into a cultural clash with austerity Britain, where no one can afford anything. But the trouble with that model is, deconstructing the whole church, it simply doesn't work. For as long as I can remember, certain people have always been critical of what they call organised religion. But like it or not, the fact is, organised religion is vastly more efficient than chaotic religion. And if you do it right, it's also much safer and much more fun. Yes, there are costs involved but only costs in money. The cost of a deconstructed house church model, as long experience shows, are all too often spiritual costs. Costs to the quality of teaching and pastoral care. Costs to our ability to reach out to a perishing world. The cost of groups slipping into cultishness and error and abusive leadership. Costs generally to the mission that God has set before us. So yes, a church like ours costs more to run than a little group meeting in someone's front room, but it can achieve far more. So without further ado, with some detail on our own costs, I've asked Jesse to come and give a little presentation. Uh, He's secretary to the trustees. He should have a a badge, really. Jesse, come and have a word with us. Have a word. So... We'll see how well this uh, this appears without the the lights being turned off. Yeah, it's a bit. I think that's clear. That's clear enough, isn't it? So, uh, one of my one of my hats is uh, as the kind of senior administrator 
in uh, the Vineyard Center, and I get to crunch all the numbers, which is just uh, the, uh, the highlight of my life. Um, the, uh, the basic ins and outs of the Vineyard are, as you see before you, over the last uh, six years, the white columns are what we have coming in, and the red columns are what we have going out. Uh, as you can see, uh, over the last couple of years, we've had a lot more going out than coming in. That is because we moved into the Vineyard Center. The Vineyard Center added a significant expense uh, to our overall annual spending. Before that, we were sort of roughly make it, getting in what we were spending. In 2012, you can see there was a massive spike in giving just before we moved into the Vineyard Center. That was um, partly uh, because of just a couple of extraordinary gifts and partly because of a, a specific sort of uh, gift day we did when we, we sort of initially sold the vision of the Vineyard Center uh, to the church and people sort of gave uh, significant amounts. That pot, as you can see over the last couple of years, has been eaten into. And so... Uh, we are now in a situation, which you will see on the next sl slide, of our bank balance doing this. Now, you might think that a bank balance of between twenty and 25,000 is not such a terrible thing. But if it keeps doing that, it's going to get to zero in about 12 months. Basically, what's happening is um, we're spending approximately £20,000 per year more than we're getting in. So with £20,000 in the bank, that line's just going to keep going. That's just, by the way, that is uh, just a single year. So from 40000 to 20000 because we've eaten £20,000 of our reserves. Next slide, please. Okay, what is that money spent on? Okay, that list on the right is really unclear, but uh, I'll, I'll just uh, point out the big, the big chunks to you. The biggest chunk on the right-hand side is salaries, staff salaries. We employ five people, uh, Toby and Carol, myself, uh, Jane Saunders uh, for Storehouse, and Matthew Wilkinson as part-time administrator. Now, uh, in total, that's about 10 days um, of... Is that right? Yeah, 10 days um, of uh, human resources. Um, the other big chunk at going round the circle is the red one is the vineyard center. The next one is venue hire, so places like this for services. Uh, the next one, which is sort of purplish, is the, the money the church spends as a tithe. So whatever the church gets in, we take 10% of that and we give it to agencies that have absolutely nothing to do with us. Um, so uh, the church, as, a, as, a, as an organization, is tithing uh, 10%. And then the smaller chunks are things like uh, uh, just travel expenses, office costs, uh, things like uh, a tiny little paltry amount for things like Young Vineyard, for uh, tech maintenance, for... Um, things we eat and drink downstairs, all those sorts of things, they all add up. Next slide. 
Where does our tithe go? So that 10% that we, we um, give to other agencies, who gets that? Well, the big, the big chunk on the right is to Vineyard Churches UK. Uh, that just goes into supporting uh, sort of various ministries, church planting internationally as well as, uh, as domestically. Um, there is a massive growth of Vineyard Churches in Africa, in Eastern Europe, in all sorts of different places that, that all goes to support. The red chunk at the bottom is, uh, is, is a portion of money that we spend on storehouse. Uh, the way that's justified is just in, in the sense that storehouse is not something, storehouse is almost a sort of separate uh, ministry of the Kingdom Vineyard, one that doesn't benefit us as a church. It's, it's for the community. Um, and the other portions are groups like uh, Caris Foundation, who do counseling in Leslie. International Justice Mission dealing with human trafficking, Bethany Trust dealing with homelessness, Glasgow Vineyard, uh, who are just friends of ours down the road that are building a new warehouse, uh, Families First locally, and Home Start locally, and the Cosmos Center locally. Good. Next slide. I don't want to bore you too much. Get to the exciting bit. Who is giving? Now, this is not an exact science, but comparing the money that comes in by direct sort of transfers into bank uh, uh, and through stewardship and, and standing orders. Adding to that the money which we collect every Sunday and comparing uh, times uh, of uh, university semesters with non-university semesters, I'm able to present you with this. People who are here all year round give that big chunk there. That's about 70%. Gift aid is tax which we're able to get back off of the government on tax that has already been paid. So if I pay tax, I get that back on the gift that I give. The green chunk is people who are here during the semester. I've, I've called this semester time and year-round members rather than students and non-students because actually there are a number of students like myself who are here all year round. Um, and other other is just various grants that have been applied for. People give us money for various things. Sometimes people just walk in off the street and say, have my money. Um, so it, uh, especially as food banks just have become uh, part, more part of the national consciousness, uh, people are just seeing us and saying, I want to support this, either with food or with money, and sometimes uh, that amounts to a significant amount. Just one note there, that green semester time members is about 10% of income. Half of that is one single donation that we receive from one person at one point. So a more realistic figure might be 5%. So about 60% of our church membership contributes about 5% of our income. So just to bear that in mind. Uh, also, um, just in case you're concerned about the uh, the size of the the chunk that we're spending on employment and staff. Um, I've just done this on the next slide, I think. Yes. Okay. Just so you're aware, that little light blue chunk is money that's just doing full circle. It's coming right back in. So um, this is just to say that um, as, um, as employees and as leaders in the church, we... Um, are committed to living the same way that we preach. So we invite others to tithe 
um, but we demonstrate that through the way that we give ourselves. Um, you can also, you might also be aware that um, we do far more than we're paid for. So um, it's a safe bet that if you can see me, I'm not getting paid. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and the same is probably true of Toby and Carol, of Rebecca and of Matthew as well. So, um, sorry, Rebecca, sorry, Jane. Sorry, Rebecca, Jane used to be Rebecca. This is, <laughs> I am sorry. Uh, have I got any more slides? Is that it? Okay, right. This is just to finish off. This is just to give you, um, because because of the size of the number, sometimes it's difficult to, to get a grasp on, you know, what can I do? How, how can I make a dent in £20,000? And I want to give you a clue as to how that might happen. So 2015, question mark, is up there at about £95,000. We don't want to get more money in than we want to spend. We don't want to just store money for the sake of it. So we're happy to eat down into our reserves. We want to spend the money that God has given us on the work that God has told us to do. So we don't want to just sit on a pot of money. Uh, we do need a, 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 a little you know, cushion for cash flow purposes. We don't want our checks to bounce. So we're happy to eat into our reserves until they get to about £10,000 or something like that. That's a, that's a comfortable cushion. But beyond that, we want to see that bank balance stop sliding and actually level out. Now, how do we get from an income of about where it has been last year to, from, of 68000 to 95000 Well, it's a big jump. But I calculated that if... The church is made up of approximately 120 members. If each individual member were to commit to giving £15 extra each month, that would cover the entire amount. I know there's, there's all sorts of sums there. I mean, it would actually just sort of roughly get us to where we need to be. But... Just so that you're aware, even if, you, even if you're thinking, well, maybe I can only give another five pounds or something like that. Well, some of us who are earning more than others, say, for example, us, us, us working students or non-students, um, might be able to commit to a bit more than that and so make up for the, the, the smaller amounts. So, for example, again, just as an example... Uh, Marie and I reviewed our giving. We uh, upped our giving by £80 a month, which already makes a, a, a dent of £960 in that 20000 So that's about, what? Give me a percentage. Just under 5%. And then Toby and Carol have done the same. So we've already hit about £2,000 of that 20000 annually. So I guess what we're saying is, uh, these are manageable amounts of money. These are not sort of scary, oh, we'll never make it, we'll never make it. But I'd, I, and, and I don't want to scare you, but basically we have to see one thing or another. We have to see giving increase to meet that expenditure, or we have to find £20,000 worth of savings somewhere. So that is the end. Those are the nuts and bolts. Um, I think that's all I have. Is that all we need? It should be. Later. Good. 50 pence a day each, apparently that equates to. So, I don't know, but why not call it a quid? Oh. <laughs>
Hurrah. So is that alarming? Thank you, Jesse. That's the current financial situation, and we just want you to be aware of that, because if we're going to face these challenges responsibly, then we need to face them openly and face them together. I don't think we should be discouraged when we see figures like that. Far from it. I believe this is actually an opportunity for us to grow as a church and as individuals. That's certainly how St. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth in the first century, views financial concerns. God's church has always had to cope with financial ups and downs. And the way it copes is by people caring for each other. In the passage we're about to read, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the church in Jerusalem has fallen on the hardest of hard times. And the other churches have decided to chip in and help. Paul devotes a significant chunk of this letter to the subject, not just because money is important for the survival of the Jerusalem church, but because this is an opportunity for the Corinthian church to grow in character and in spirituality. So that's why we wanted to present you with both aspects of our own situation today. I hope Jesse and I have been able to show in that first part that there is a need for money, if the church God has built here is to continue and grow. But in this second part, I want to concentrate on the other side, the other aspect, the spiritual opportunity this situation presents for us as individuals and as a church. Two chapters, of course, makes for a very long reading, uh, but I think it's important to do the whole thing, to uh, preserve the integrity of it, rather than just picking bits here and there. So with your permission, what I'm going to do is just read it and give you the headlines as I see them as we go along. So 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. Headline number one, generous giving entails an element of sacrifice. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So this chap, Titus, clearly had begun some time ago getting the Corinthian church ready to make a substantial donation, and now he's going to come and collect it. Did you notice the word grace in verses 1 and 6? There's only the first two of seven mentions of grace in this passage. Generous giving is a sign of God's grace in verse 1 and a human act of grace in verse 6. As the Corinthians follow God's example and act with the same love and generosity as he does, they'll be joining their actions and joining their lives to his, making, as we put it in the Kingdom Vineyard, a connection with God. And in between verses 1 and 6, we have this story of the the, the new believers in Macedonia, proving that rule that we so often see in the world that the poorest people of the world are often the most generous as well. These guys give even beyond what they can afford. That is, afford according to any earthly computation. 
Now, that might strike us as irresponsible, but Paul actually praises them for it. In much the same way as Luke, uh, Jesus in, in Luke 21 commends the poor widow. Do you remember the widow's mite story? For, for giving a tiny amount, which is actually all she had to live on, to the work of the temple. And in that story, Jesus uh, contrasts the sacrificial generosity of her tuppence worth with the sort of lazy indifference with which the wealthy can make far larger donations. Giving is of value to God when it costs us something. It does entail an element of sacrifice, and we just have to get used to that. Macedonians, verse 2, are poor in money, but they are rich in generosity. As Jesus puts it in Luke 12, they are rich toward God. Headline 2, generous giving means putting our money where our mouth is. Verse 7, as you excel in everything... In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's that word, grace, Again, in verses 7 and 9. In Ephesians 2, the same writer, Paul, famously uses the same word to say how Christians are saved from their sins. By grace. We sang it just now, didn't we? By grace. And the best explanation I know of that word grace, what does grace mean, is the old Sunday school one. Do you know this? G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's certainly the kind of grace that Paul is referring to here in verse 9. The grace of Jesus in giving up his life is far beyond a monetary value. And indeed, this frequently repeated word grace in this passage reminds us that we're not trying to buy God's favour in some way. That pagan idea of sacrifice has no place in Christianity. But Paul says our money is important as well. Financial giving is an act of grace, specifically not buying ourselves any benefit, but like God, just doing good because we are good, being gracious because we are gracious. In verse 7, he commends them for many, many excellences in what we often think of as the more spiritual areas of life. And now he says, let's match that with an equal excellence in financial generosity. And I'm certain that if Paul was here giving this talk instead of me, he'd want to say the same thing to you guys. That you excel in so many things. Let's excel in generous giving as well. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be as well. And when Paul speaks in verse 8 about proving our love to be genuine... He is reminding us that the test is not how we feel while we're singing worship songs. It's what we do when the collection comes around. In an average month, how much do we spend on our church? And how does that compare with what we spend on coffee or beer or clothes or whatever your thing is? Or downloads? And if you're one of those, and you wouldn't be alone, who spend more on coffee than you do on your church week by week, then this is an opportunity to redress what you must see as a serious imbalance in your life. We excel 
as a church in so many things. Let's put our money where our mouth is and excel also in this act of grace. Third headline, generous giving comes from the heart, verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be patched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now notice that interesting order in verse 10. First do the work, then desire to do it. We'd think it was the other way around, wouldn't we? But what he's saying is, they started to give before they started to want to give. Like so much of the Christian life, giving often starts as a discipline, not a spontaneous outpouring. We have to learn to be generous. But verse 11 also shows, I think, another side of the coin. Sometimes we get as far as deciding, even as far as actively wanting to give, but we never actually get around to doing it. Some of us have, in the past, made decisions to give. Some of us feel a strong urge to give, but somehow it just never happens. Well, here is an opportunity for fulfillment and resolution. As verse 10 says, this benefits you. At the back of the church today, we've got uh, this leaflet that tells you different ways that you can give, and this one, uh, where you can sign up for regular giving, and if you're a taxpayer, uh, we will get the tax back on your donations. The big pile of them at the back, we didn't put them on the seats because we didn't want to oppress you before you started. We'll oppress you later. Over lunch, maybe. Yeah, I'll buy you lunch and oppress you. How does that sound? Oh, it's going. It's going. I knew it would. Verses 12 to 15 speak of bringing the churches at Corinth and Jerusalem into balance. It's not impoverishing one for the enrichment of the other. And the guiding principle in verse 15 is that, which comes from the story of the manna in the desert, the, the bread from heaven in the desert, is that God wants everyone to have enough. And, which is much more challenging, not to have left over. In God's economy, more than enough is a waste. So my family motto is, more than enough will be quite sufficient for me. Those with cash to spare, verse 12, should indeed be giving more than those who have none. But Paul still assumes that everyone will give something. But we need to notice that if, in verse 12, if the readiness is there, if we truly feel, verse 10's desire to give, then a small gift, like the widow's might in the story, is perfectly acceptable. But if the, if the willingness is not, is not there, then it might well not be acceptable. And I think what he's getting at here is that the willingness, the generous heart, is essential to a balanced view of what we can afford. Don't we all know people who, who, who say they can't afford things that we think are 
perfectly ordinary expenses, and yet they spend money on things that we think of as luxuries. So, so that's where that if comes in. If the desire to give is there, then you know, a small gift is absolutely fine. Yeah, we might have to work at it, but truly generous giving just comes from the heart. If your heart is not as healthy as it might be, you're well advised by your doctor to take some cardiovascular exercise. Well, giving is God's cardio program for the spiritual heart. Fourth headline, generous giving deserves deserves proper accountability. Verse 16, but thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him, we're sending the brother who's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with him, we're sending our brother, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now, these verses are just basically about proper accounting and accountability. Paul and co. take seriously the security and sort of good bookkeeping practice. So he's sending a group of reputable people to ensure fair play that this money isn't just going to go missing. And just so that you know, our own church accounts are externally examined by an independent accountant and all freely available through the Scottish Charities Office. I don't want to spend much more time on this section, but before we move on, just notice once again in verse 19, the description of this offering, including the financial checks and balances and all, as an act of grace. And for those of you looking for some careers advice, there is nothing remotely unspiritual about accountancy. And notice as well in verse 24, once more, generous giving is the proof of every other good thing that Paul has been saying about them. It completes the picture of a well-rounded character. Headline five, generous giving is done now, not later. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's sort of Greece, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and I find that you're not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. We just need to deliver on our promises and do it immediately, not at some unspecified future, this year, next year, sometime, never, when it'll be more convenient. 
Giving, as we said before, involves a sacrifice. And if we wait for a better time, it'll probably never come. So, as the Nike Corporation, and much more importantly, my mother-in-law, were keen on saying, just do it. Headline number six, and this is the last one. Generous giving is rewarded by God. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound for every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And there's a great deal we could say about this last little section on sowing and reaping. But since the principle is pretty obvious, and this is the bit that preachers around the world always like to talk about, and you've probably heard a million talks about it before, I think we can afford to be brief. Quite simply, a farmer sowing a field with seed, he can either be stingy with it, plant one seed at a time and not get very much return, or he can be really generous with the seed and get a huge harvest. It costs more to use more seed, but the results are easily worth it. Paul says the same rules apply in the spiritual realm as well. If we give generously, we'll see more fruit for the same amount of labor. It is in this context that the famous phrase in verse 7 comes about God loving a cheerful giver. It's obvious from the context that what he's not saying is don't give if you don't want to. There's no suggestion here that God loves a miserable skinflint. No, it's an appeal once more to the heart. We shouldn't give reluctantly or under compulsion which means we just give the bare minimum, we should give cheerfully. And then the result will be plenty for all. And this is not, as some think of it, the prosperity gospel, a promise to make us all millionaires if we only give enough. The last thing Paul would ever have wanted would be a money-motivated people giving money to get money in a kind of selfish spiral. No, generous giving is an act of grace completely unmotivated by self-interest. That is what blesses the whole church of God and through it, the wider world. In fact, notice the shift from the individual, where well, it's not so clear in modern English than in the, the, the these and thousand years of, of the old language. But there is a shift from the individual in verse 7 to the corporate, the church, in verse 8. The singular each one who must give 
in verse 7 becomes a plural you in verse 8 who is blessed by God. Because a generous church is made up of generous individuals. A church like that, Paul says, is one that sows generously and can expect a good harvest. Still in verse 8, blessed with all we need in all things at all times, equipping and supplying us for all good works. Verses 10 and 11 are speaking of a a, a positive cycle where sowing generously, this happens in farming as well, actually, if you recycle the seed, sowing generously leads to having more spare seed to sow next year, etc., etc. Now, that clearly includes money, but it certainly doesn't end with money. Verse 11 says we'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. That means not just financially. But with our time, our energy, our love, our forgiveness, our prayers, our spiritual gifts, and much more that I haven't been able to think of. What it's all about, verse 10, is just increasing our harvest of righteousness. And the passage ends, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When we see how generously God has given to us, how can we fail to give back? Can we think how Jesus gave up his body on the cross for us? How can we not give generously to the support of that which is called the body of Christ on earth, his church? Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we we just thank you for the inexpressible gift that we have in Christ Jesus. I want to thank you for everything that you've everything that you've given us. We come to you as a as a grateful people today and also in some cases needy people. We ask that you'll come by your Holy Spirit now and Convict us of truth, but wash away condemnation. Thank you that we stand before you justified entirely by the grace of what you've done through Jesus. Now come, Holy Spirit, and bless your people, I pray. You send healing, clarity, wisdom, grace, forgiveness. Just move over your people now, I pray. Let's come, O Lord. Come, O Jesus. Thank you for being with us, Lord.